Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, we're continuing here as we have been all summer. I guess it's really just the first... uh, couple days of summer here as we've been continuing all spring uh, with our study from the book of Romans. And uh, before we begin, I want to just pause for one more word of prayer. So would you pray with me? Father God, we bow before you and uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we know that uh, Lord, your word is eternal and it's living and it's active it pierces, Lord, to the very heart. We pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning from your word. Lord, that you would do your work. Help us uh, not to leave this time, Lord, unchanged by your word. I pray, God, that you would feed your sheep this morning. And, uh, Lord, draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Michelle made me a uh, Father's Day cake, so when I go home this afternoon, I'm planning to uh, enjoy that thoroughly. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that as I go home and before I I dive into the cake and eat it, I I will probably, you know, look at it and behold it and, and maybe even take a picture of it. Might put it on Facebook or Instagram or something. Admire the artistry of the cake, right? I mean, you know, you know how people take pictures of their food and put it on on social media. But uh, it won't take long for me to get past that and to decide to just dive right into that cake and devour it because that that is after all why she made the cake that we might enjoy it and eat it. Well, there's there's an old saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Have you heard that saying before? I brought that up at the lunch table yesterday just to see if um, everybody understood it. And everybody at the table didn't understand it, so I'm going to explain it here a little bit. If you eat the cake, you don't have it anymore. It's gone, right? So you can either have it or you can eat it. But you can't both have your cake and eat it too, right? You have to, you have to decide. You have to make a decision. You know, some people dismiss the gospel of Jesus Christ as nonsense, on the grounds that it's like wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Some people uh, dismiss it in that way. You see, the, the gospel justifies the ungodly apart from the law. So Paul's been, the case he's been making here in Romans chapter 3. But at the same time, Paul insists that through the gospel... God is actually upholding the law. So he justifies us apart from the law, but he at the same time is upholding the law. Paul, what are you talking about? You can't have your cake and eat it too. Which is it? Well, I can assure you the gospel is not a vain hope of wanting to have your cake and eat it too. The the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals God to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. 
think about that phrase. I, I took that phrase from the very next chapter, so we're going to be talking about it a little bit more um, probably next week. In Romans 4.4, 4, Paul says that we believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. How can that be? How can God justify the ungodly and still be just? Well, he does it by faith. The gospel uh, reveals God to be just and the justifier, as I said. I just have two points for you this morning. God justifies the ungodly by faith apart from the law, verses 27 through 30. And at the same time, God justifies the ungodly legally by upholding the law, verse 31. So we'll just take these points one at a time here. First, God justifies the ungodly by faith apart from the law. Look in your Bibles here in verse 27. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? This word here, then. It's kind of one of these therefore words, right? It, it points you back to everything that came before, right? One of those, one of those laws of biblical interpretation. When you see the word therefore, you've got to look and see what it's there for. You go back and look and see what, what Paul has just been talking about. And that's exactly what's going on here. This, this then links us back to the preceding paragraph where Paul has just been describing in detail a new and better manifestation of God's righteousness. Right? Paul began the, the book of Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, talking about a manifestation of God's righteousness. There is a way that God can manifest his righteousness that is harmful to us. Right? It is his righteous wrath, his righteous anger against our sin, against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And we want God to be this way. We want him to be angry at evil, because if he was not angered by evil, he would not be good. But no, we, we learn here that God's, right, God's righteous wrath is being revealed from heaven as a manifestation of his righteousness. And I think that this is designed to, to teach us, to show us that God cares very much about his commandments. He cares very much about his laws. Because, you know, some people think that, that it's almost as if, if God has to keep the law himself, then it's almost like the law is over God, right? A law over him. But that's not at all what I'm suggesting here. I'm suggesting Rather, that the law is a re reflection of God's glorious, righteous character. Right? So he must keep the law. And when we break the law, it, it brings out his righteous wrath. We've spent many weeks talking about that. I won't belabor that anymore. But here in chapter 3, verse 21, we've turned a corner, right? From talking about that bad news, that, that manifestation of God's righteousness that is to our harm. And, and Paul turns a corner in in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and he begins to announce a new and better manifestation of God's righteousness. It's a, a manifestation of God's righteousness that is uh, made known to us through the gospel, a righteousness made available apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All right, this is what Paul has been talking about now for quite a few verses. 
But how is it that through faith in Jesus you can have access to God's righteousness in a positive way? How does that work? If I, if I were to ask you this morning, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? I, I hope almost all of you, your hands would go up, right? But what if I were to then ask you, well, how does that work? How, do, how is it that someone else can die for your sins and that results in you being made righteous? Right? We don't, it's the kind of thing that doesn't normally happen in our day-to-day lives, right? Well, Paul describes here how that can happen in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. And we talked about this two weeks ago. Talked about how Christ's death on the cross functioned as a propitiation. That's not a theological word. That's a biblical word that's in, in the text, right? Christ's death on the cross functioned as a propitiation, and that means it was a sacrifice that absorbs wrath. That's, what, that's why Jesus died. It wasn't just as a good example of being selfless. No, he died as a sacrifice that absorbed the wrath of God. It is a propitiatory sacrifice. And through that act of propitiation, God's righteous wrath was, was satisfied, and Christ's sacrifice made it possible for the Father to righteously redeem us, right? to be able to buy us back, to deliver us out of slavery to sin, out of the consequence to death. He redeemed us. He bought us back out of that and delivered us into his kingdom and adopted us as his sons. And not only that, the text says here that that God actually justifies us. That is, he declares us to be righteous. Not just declares us to be okay. He doesn't just forgive us of our sins and say, okay, I'm okay with you now. No, God declares us to be righteous. And he doesn't do this in just some sort of arbitrary way. He doesn't just sort of make up some legal fiction whereby because he's God and he said it so, that, that's the way it is. God, in justifying us, isn't engaging in some sort of divine act of injustice. He's not setting aside the law. No, Jesus' righteous life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to to the right hand of God, the Father on high, his life and ministry, his propitiatory sacrifice on the cross, actually made it possible for us to legally be declared righteous by God. Sinners like you and me. Righteous. How can this be? How can this be? One word for you. Jesus. Right? Jesus. Who, by the way, willingly participated in the Father's plan to do this. It was the Father's plan, but Jesus obeyed willingly. And so through Jesus Christ, God is able to be both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Now, Paul will say, now I'm getting back, that's all all that's by way of review, okay? (laughs) So now I'm going to dive into the actual text here. If you get back here to verse 27, Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting, right? If you understand that the way that you are saved is by faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross, not being just a good example, but actually accomplishing something that allowed you to be saved. 
then Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? Literally, he says, where then is, is the boasting? And the answer here is that it is completely excluded. In the English here, it says, it's you know three words, it is excluded. But in, in the original language, that's one Greek word. And this one word here literally means to shut something out, to shut it out. The gospel of justification by faith completely shuts out our boasting. A number of years ago, um, when I was still here in, you know, I was living here in East Brunswick, so it wasn't that long ago, but maybe three or four years ago, I went for a, a run at Heavenly Farms on the other side of uh, East Brunswick. It's a, a park. And I uh, went running with my dog. I had a dog at the time. And uh, something happened, and I needed to put something in my trunk. So I ran back to my car, opened up my trunk, set something in my trunk, and slammed the door shut, the, the trunk shut. And suddenly I realized, uh-oh, I set my keys down in the trunk. Right? I was locked out. I was shut out of my car. And to make matters worse, to make matters worse, I, uh, I, I didn't have a spare key. This was a, a, a car that I had gotten from, I had bought from Bruce and uh, only had one key and I was, had never gotten around to making that spare key. So when I say I was locked out of my car, I was locked out of my car, right? I actually had to call Rich and I think I called Bruce too and they came over, do you remember this Rich? Came over to the park and let me tell you, this man knows how to break into cars. <laughs> so watch out. No, but he, he got out of his Slim Jim and he, he broke into my car for me. And uh, I, I can tell you that I next thing I did the next day was I got some spare keys made right for my car. Mm-hmm. But anyways, this, this reminded me, just kind of brought, brought to life a little bit of a word picture here of what happens to our boasting when it comes to believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is completely shut out without a spare key. There is no room for boasting at all. Right? That's, that's what the gospel means. If, if you understand the gospel in some other way that, that leaves some shred of your ability to boast in, in yourself or in who you are, then you don't understand it. Right? Paul says it, the boasting is completely excluded. Now, Paul continues here in the second half of verse 27. He says, by what kind of law? So, in other words, by what kind of law is boasting excluded? By a, a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Now, I think this can be a little bit confusing, Paul using this word law here. Because he's usually when, when Paul uses the word law, he's referring to what? The Mosaic law, right? The... Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you know, perhaps you could even say the Ten Commandments, summed up in the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant. But Paul, I think, is engaging in a play on words here. He's using this word law, and he's using it in more of a general sense, right? In the sense of more of like a principle. In fact, I think if you, if you have the NIV this, this morning, in, in your Bible, you, I think the NIV actually translates it by what kind of principle. And I, I agree with that translation here. Paul is asking, 
by what kind of principle is boasting excluded? And the answer to this question is really readily discernible by, just by common sense. Does works exclude boasting? No, it does not, right? <laughs> works leads to boasting. We know this from, from the earliest of ages, you know, when today's Father's Day, right? And I was thinking about when my kids were young, and they would say, Dad, come here. I want you, you know, look at me, Dad. Look at me. Look at what I did, what I'm doing. You know, they're so proud just to, to be able to, to boast to their dad what they had done. I saw this principle at work in, in my own life just this week. Many of you know I'm not a very mechanically-minded person. Even though I'm a, I'm a technically-minded person, I like, I like tech. But when it comes to fixing, like, car, something like that. I'm usually calling Rich um, or, or something around my house. I'm calling the deacons to come over and, and help me out. But last week, my fridge broke down. And through the wonder of YouTube and to the glory of God through prayer, I fixed my fridge. Yeah, can you believe it? I can see the shock on some of your faces. I did it. And uh, ever since then, I've sort of humbly been dropping that fact into just about every situation. Some of you probably already heard this story this week. I fixed my fridge, right? And uh, I, I, that's the way it works, right? When, when we do the work, we have something to boast in. We, we want to tell other people about it. And uh, that's the kind of principle that is, ex is completely excluded by the gospel, but, but by contrast here, Paul says that it is by the principle of faith that boasting is excluded. It's not a good thing to boast in God's presence. And if you're trusting in your own works, one day when you stand before him, you're going to find yourself boasting before God Almighty. And that is not, not a good thing. What is it that excludes boasting before God, it is the principle of faith, the law of faith. Now, faith is, is not a good work. It's not a good work that you do. In fact, faith is the absence of work. You can't even boast in the fact that you had faith. You know, sometimes we want to turn faith into a work. Right? We might look out at someone else and say, well, how come... They don't walk with God, and I do. Well, it's because, you know, I had faith. Right? We, we, we want to turn, turn our faith into a boast. But we can't even boast in the faith. Right? Our faith is a gift from God. And faith itself is not something to be boasted in. It, faith is really just a channel through which the grace of God flows to us. And so the, the principle that, that Paul is really establishing here is the, the old Reformation principle of soli deo gloria, to glory to God alone. Right? We understand our salvation to be something that only brings glory to God. And as I already said, if you understand salvation in Christ to be anything else, to leave any room for boasting, then beware. You've, you've probably misunderstood it. Look at verse 28 here. Paul goes on, he says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
when a, when a person is justified by faith alone, apart from works, and I mean when, when you really understand it, when you really understand the gospel, then the heart naturally turns to glorify God and not self. You know, when, when someone who truly understands the gospel and has truly tasted the grace of God is asked about their faith, they don't instinctively turn to a long list of things that they have done seeking to sort of justify themselves to you. No, they instinctively begin to gush about their Savior. They instinctively begin to speak uh, words of, of glorifying praise to the one who did all the work, right? We don't begin boasting in the fact that we fixed the fridge if someone else fixed it, right? You begin to gush about the person who swept in and fixed it for you, right? That's, that is uh, what we understand justification by faith alone to mean. All the glory goes to, to him. And I just want to ask you this morning, do you understand that principle at a heart level? I don't mean just in your head, but do you understand it in your heart that God justifies you by faith apart from works of the law, apart from anything in which you might boast? Because that is one of the most important things to understand in all the universe, is to understand how we are saved by faith. Now, not only does justification by faith exclude boasting in works, it also excludes boasting in anything that you are. Not just anything you've done, but anything that you are. That's what Paul's going to say here in verses 29 and 30. He says, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Paul's writing to a, a mixed church in, in the city of Rome, a mixed church that has both Jews and Gentiles in it. And he's making sure that the Jews here understand that they can't boast in being Jewish or, or being circumcised because those things in, in and of themselves do not save you. Those things should have been an advantage in helping you to understand that which does save you, but those things in and of themselves do not save you. They do not justify you in any way. And so Paul is arguing here to the contrary that since God is one God, then certainly that means that there must be only one means of justification. One means of justification that is bigger than things like circumcision or uncircumcision or categories like Jew or Gentile or black or white or man or woman or whatever, fill in the blank. Right? We, we're reading here Jew and Gentile, but we can understand that to mean anything that might uh, lead you to boast in, in your flesh. And Paul, he begins here with, with this commonly held belief that God is one. This comes straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. In Hebrew, they call this the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is like the John 3.16 of Judaism. Like it's something they, li they literally recite every week in the synagogue, right? That God is one. So, so Paul begins with that, that commonly held belief that God is one, and he uses that to reason that if God is one, then certainly that means that God, there's only one God over all people. 
And if there's only one God over all people, then certainly then there's only one way of salvation through him, not multiple ways. Your faith must not rest in who you are, but it must rest in who God is and what God has done. Right? It must not rest in any external matter uh, that you might use to identify yourself or to boast in yourself. You must rest in who God is and what he has done. And, you know, I, I think sometimes we read this, a lot of this Jew-Gentile conflict in the early church, and we, we think it doesn't really apply to us that much, that much anymore. Uh, but the principle here is broader than that, I think. And John Piper helpfully helped me out with that this week. He said this, that circumcision really could stand for any religious or ethnic trait that you might think would commend you to God. And uncircumcision could really stand for any trait or missing trait that you think might keep you from God. He said that the oneness of God means that there is one way to salvation, not the way of works, but the way of faith. And because it is the way of faith, it cuts across all ethnic and political and language and cultural barriers. Justification by faith excludes any notion of tribalism, right? That this is my God, and you might have a different belief or a different God, and that's fine, right? That, that kind of mentality. But God is bigger than that. He's bigger than your little tribe. He's the God of the whole world. And you can't just believe in, in, in God as your God because of some unique external factor that only applies to your select group of people and to hell with everybody else. Right? A lot of people have that mentality, even Christians, that this is what I believe, but you believe what you want to believe. No, that's, that's not right. There is one God. And there is one means of justification before him. And we must believe that. We must understand it. We must believe it. God is God over every square inch of his universe and over every people. And this is incredibly exclusive, isn't it? Recognize that. It's incredibly exclusive. Only one God, only one way. But it is at the same time incredibly inclusive because the invitation goes out to all, to everybody. Anyone can place their faith in Jesus and be saved. So God justifies the ungodly by faith apart from the law. That's my first point. And of course, that necessitates the exclusion of boasting in anything that we've done, in anything that we are. It's because it is accomplished apart from works of the law. But at the same time, at the same time here, God justifies the ungodly legally by upholding the law. See that in the last verse here, verse 31. After doing all this work of setting aside works of the law as a means of justification before God, Paul anticipates the objection here in, in verse 31. Read it with me. It says, um, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? 
right? If we're setting aside, if we're saying there's a way to be saved apart from the law, are we then setting the law aside? Are we overthrowing what God has previously said? Paul has repeatedly insisted that the gospel manifests a righteousness apart from the law. So if we're to be justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law, then doesn't grace overthrow the law, setting aside as meaningless or even worthless and unhelpful the law of God? The answer to that is no. Not at all. Paul emphatically denies this here. He says, may it never be. By no means. It's the, the, the expression in Greek is meganoita, and he uses it throughout chapter 3, just emphatically denying it. Any teaching that would seek to overthrow the word of God as revealed should be rejected as a false gospel. But Paul insists, on the contrary, we uphold the law. The beauty of Jesus' life and sacrificial death is that he didn't abolish or overthrow what God had previously said. He fulfilled it. Jesus said that that's what he came to do in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when he said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And that's exactly what Paul is insisting here The gospel of Jesus Christ does not overthrow the law, it upholds it. Paul's going to say later in in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 3, he's going to say, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that, what? in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? That's why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And so justification by faith apart from the law does not mean that God just shrugged the law off. Think, of, think for just a moment of all that the law of God represents. It represents a very real standard that can't just be lowered. Right? God didn't say, okay, I know, I know you, you're not going to get 100% on this exam, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a curve on it. Right? I'm going to lower the bar. I'm going to let you sneak by with a 75%, which, you know, in reality, we know that God wouldn't be able to lower the bar low enough. Right, because we are sinners through and through. But God didn't do that. He didn't lower his standard. Right? The, the law represents a very real standard that cannot be lowered arbitrarily. It represents a real punishment that had to be paid. Right? The law requires death as a penalty for sin from the first three ch- chapters of the Bible. And so God didn't just here through Jesus Christ set that aside. No, he upheld that requirement. In Jesus by sending his son to die on the cross. Think about the real requirement in the law that we be righteous. A real standard of righteousness that must be fulfilled. God not only paid for the the penalty of our sin through Jesus Christ, but he positively earned us a reward of righteousness through Jesus, through his righteous life. So what God did through Jesus is all perfectly legal. 
And that's the point. The gospel is not some sort of legal fiction where God just sort of runs amok over all his, his own standards and righteous requirements. No, he, he did it legally in a way that fulfills and upholds the very law that would have been our undoing. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, it's just incredible, the, the wisdom, the depths of the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. He is, in Jesus Christ, both just and the justifier. He is the one who justly justifies the ungodly through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the gospel of justification by faith at once sets aside the works of the law in which we might boast and at the same time upholds that very same law. And I want to just close this morning just by talking for a few moments about why this matters. Why, why should this matter to you today? And, you know, the, the list of applications for this really could be endless. But I, I think chief among them for, for most of the people who are here this morning is that it is extremely important for you to understand the gospel that saves you. It is extremely important to understand because if you, if you don't get this right, there are, are many teachers of, of this book that would lead you astray. Paul, you know, was writing to the Romans addressing this Jewish tendency to want to accuse the gospel of overthrowing the law. That's why Paul wrote this. And that argument still persists to this day between Jews and Gentiles. So it's an important thing to be able to explain to our, our Jewish friends and, and neighbors. Jew-Gentile, the, the Jew-Gentile divide is still important, but it, the issue really is broader than this. There is another way in which the gospel comes under attack with these issues in our day and age. And it actually comes from those who, who would call themselves Christians. There are, are many churches in America today who deny God's wrath in Romans chapters 1 through 3. They deny that God is a, a just God who is, is justly wrathful against all ungodliness and sinfulness. And by the time they get to the end of Romans chapter 3 and they get to talking about uh, the cross and what Jesus did there, the gospel message becomes completely unrecognizable. They not only reject any notion that Christ died as a sacrifice for our sins, but it, it becomes nonsensical to them that Jesus would die in that way. They, they say that, that to insist that Christ died for your sins turns God into some sort of cosmic child abuser. They think it, it, it would be monstrous for God the Father to crucify his own son to somehow appease his own wrath. Have you heard this before? It's more common than, than, than you might believe. There are many churches in America whose message is essentially this, as a man by the name of Richard Niebuhr put it, that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a cross, Christ without a cross. It's a mouthful. Let me say it one more time. A God without wrath 
brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. I kid you not, there are many churches in America today that you will walk into and that will be the message that is preached. And it boils the cross down to nothing more than just a good example. A good example of selfless living. And so, church, you need to understand the necessity. Why did Jesus have to die for you to be saved? You need to understand that God sacrificed his son because he believes in the law. He upholds his own word. He upholds the law. In fact, God values his law so much, he sacrificed his son to uphold it. That he might uphold the law and be able to save us. It's who he is. So first, I just want to encourage you to understand on a heart level the gospel that you believe. To to not just understand it on a surface level, but to to dive into some of these deeper understandings of of the mechanics of how it works that we are justly saved in this way. But secondly, I just want to give an appeal to repent of all boasting and believe. If you were to to die this afternoon, God forbid it, if you were to, to die this afternoon and you were to stand before God Almighty and he were to ask you, Why should I let you into heaven? How would you answer him? Would you rattle off all the good things that you've done? Your church attendance, your baptism, your acts of selfless giving? Or would you maybe even boast in your faith? Or would you boast in Jesus? Would your heart reflexively talk about what he has done, about his propitiation for you on the cross, about how he redeemed you out of sin when you were completely enslaved to it, how he offered you a promise of justification by grace through faith. I hope that your boast will be in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Would you boast in who you are that perhaps you're a third-generation Baptist? Or perhaps a child of Abraham, a a Jew? Perhaps a a fine, upstanding citizen or a a war veteran or an American social activist, a good neighbor or maybe even a good father? Or, Or would you boast in who he is and what he has done? Has your boasting ever been excluded by your faith in Jesus Christ? Has it ever shut it out? God is the God who justifies the ungodly by grace alone, through faith alone, to his glory alone. Let that sink in. Repent of your boasting this morning and instead believe in what Christ has done. Will you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for, Lord, the, the word that we just looked at this morning. Lord, we thank you for, Lord, securing our salvation in such a way that, Lord, it's not up to us. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, thank you for 
dealing with your wrath in that way. And Father, we are so grateful that uh, it's not up to us to earn it. But Lord, we reach out to you in faith again this morning. Lord, trusting in you, that you will save us based upon who you are and what you have done. Father, I pray that you would help us to turn from any boasting that we might have in our life. Help us not to boast in, in uh, Lord, who we are or what we do, but may our boast truly be in you, and may the glory go to you alone, Father, we pray. Pray for anyone here this morning, God, who's maybe never trusted in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would, Lord, help them to humble themselves, to turn from their sin, to turn from their boasting, and to look to Christ, to lay down their effort, and to simply believe. We trust in you for that. We trust in your unfailing word to do its work. We pray, God, that you would build up this church and strengthen it by your word and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.